0: Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two,
1: one. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish
0: nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. show that's always interesting, usually funny and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend. This week's episode is brought to you by Boat Setter Fishing. Boat Setter is the home for on-the-water experiences, including fishing. You can book your charters for fishing or guides, including the Fish Nerds Guide Service. That's my business. Rent boats for going out on your own. All types of boats and charters are available, from bass boats to pontoons and center consoles to offshore sport fishers. Plan your next boating adventure and get 5% off when you book on Boat Setter with code FISHNERDS. And the cool thing is your boat can make you money when you're not using it, which is the whole concept, and insured by GEICO, so that's cool. So let's get into the show. We'll talk more about sponsor stuff later. All right, so tonight we are test-driving a new co-host. Uh, you might have heard in the last two episodes I announced that I need to get more voices on the show, and Mark Carter answered an email, well, he emailed me, and I replied, he wanted to give it out. So tonight is uh, audition time for Mark Carter. So we're gonna want your feedback after the show. Call 607-378-Fish and tell us if you like Mark or not. And if, if we like him, we'll 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 use him more often. Okay. So Mark Carl, Mark Carter is a biologist in training and a podcaster in training. He has and and a BS and MS in fisheries biology.
0: Yeah, that's right, but uh, long, long ago, so I'm a little bit out of practice.
1: Yeah, because you're super old. People can't see you, but man, <laughs> can't get over it. All right, so <laughs> Mark, how are you, and where are you from?
0: Uh, from From North Carolina originally. live in uh, Georgia now.
1: You live in Georgia now. What part of Georgia?
0: Atlanta, outside Atlanta. Duluth, God. Georgia.
1: Duluth. It's funny. I've been in Atlanta like six times in the last five years, and I get bored in the first day of oh, Atlanta. I don't love it. I don't. Do
0: you go uh, way down yonder on the Chattahoochee.
1: No? <laughs> no, I'm staying in a hotel, and I got nowhere to go because I'm in a conference, and so I just uh, walk out the hotel. I can get to the aquarium and the Cook Museum, and then I'm yeah. like, ah, that's enough. Maybe I'll have dinner at the a Hard guy Like you, yeah,
0: right by the aquarium, and you get bored, huh?
1: Well, not the aquarium bored me, but it was like it's. I did it. And now I'm like, what else is there? Yeah. What else you know, is you can there? You
0: Free on your birthday. I go every year on my birthday. Really?
1: Pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. When when's your birthday?
0: November twenty second.
1: That's uh that's a good day. All right. Well, cool. Happy it's birthday. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming or it's,
0: it's, it's coming around the corner of us. Not soon, but later.
1: Soon, but later. All right. And so Mark, what are you do in Atlanta? Uh,
0: so I'm a, I work on hydropower issues and environmental issues. I work for the government. Uh, most people just think I work for the EPA, but I don't, I'll tell you what I do. And then like a couple minutes will go by and they're like, "Oh, uh, so you work for the EPA. Hmm. That's enough.
1: So working with hydro and uh, I used to work at a hydro facility as an educator at a fish ladder helping with fish migration. Uh, does, does do the dams you work at the hydropower, it must be dams. Do they, yeah, in, right, yeah. do they impede migration, migratory fishes, or do you not have migratory fishes on those areas?
0: Uh, yeah. So fish passage is certainly an issue that, that, you know, gets looked at when they, uh, license these facilities. So yeah, they're, um, Fish passage is a is a deal, yeah. So yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes they get past, and sometimes they don't.
1: Sometimes they don't, yeah. <laughs> <where> we <laughs> yeah. We we would we did a study on our dam with Atlantic salmon, and I got to tag about five hundred Atlantic salmon smolts, and the, and it was the funniest thing. I was, I was like twenty five years old, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service came in with all these with a whole truckload of these smolts. And we had to tag them. And the radio tags we used were like the size of a Tic Tac with a long wire coming out of them. And to get them in, you had to put them around the fish's throat. And you had to dip them in KY Jelly and then use a pencil eraser and shove them down the throat of these fishes. And then you would throw the fish into the river. But we ran out of KY Jelly. So I had to go to CVS and I had to buy a case of KY jelly from CVS and it kind was kind of awkward. It was the most embarrassing thing I ever had to buy. <laughs>
0: yeah, I can <could> imagine. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, I, I bought a Kit Kat with it so it'd be less impactful. I'm like, I'll take all <laughs> that KY jelly and a, and a Kit Kat too. There you go. For the energy I'm going to need after. So so we did that and we we looped them up and we shoved them in these fishes and we dumped them on the river. And they they, they were looking forward to see is do these fish survive going downstream like through the penstocks. You know what a penstock is, Mark? I do. See, I'm, I'm, I'm talking dam. See,
0: so <laughs> We're talking about language.
1: Yeah, all right. So tell tell people what a penstock is if they don't know.
0: Well, so so uh, do you mean going through the turbine or the penstock? So the penstock being um, just kind of a long water conveying structure, but the yeah going down through the the turbines uh, can be tricky for down migrating fish.
1: Absolutely. Sure. So the penstock is meant was at an our dam was meant as downstream passage for fishes, like a way oh, around okay. the penstock. They, and, they, and after they did the study, by the way, they, they built a brand new downstream passage because they found none of the salmon used the penstock, <laughs> And all of them used the turbines to go down. And so they were just going right down through the turbines, getting spun around in circles, uh, and then getting spout the other end. And we have a resonant population of, 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 um, of striped bass that live below the, the, tur- the turbines, and they just ate all these salmon. It's <laughs> just yeah.
0: complete waste. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of money. Shoved downstream,
1: huh? It was very fun. Yeah, I didn't. All care. for science. All for science. Yeah. And now, now that salmon program does not exist anymore, mm. they did it for like thirty years, and they never got more than like two salmon returning from an ocean trip. Tricky. Yeah, tricky. It's tricky. But what the salmon programs like that do, even though this doesn't work for salmon, is the river got opened up for herring, sea lamprey, shad, and other migratory fish. So it 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 is night. You know. They call the salmon like the the Bambi fish. That's that the cute and cuddly thing that brings money in and attracts tourists and and people. But really, it's not really about the salmon. It's about everything else getting better. So
0: charismatic megafauna?
1: That's exactly the word I was thinking for, but I couldn't find. You well, I don't it.
0: know if salmon have ever been accused of being that, but uh, but hey, close enough, right?
1: Well, we you know in my world. That's <laughs> that's
0: how it worked. So there you go. Oh,
1: that's cool. And and you fish obviously because you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, be here probably if you didn't.
0: I do yeah, I'm kind of out of practice as a biologist, but I, I do love to fish and turn over rocks and canoe and spend time on the Chattahoochee River. I have, uh, I have a few kids running around, and so I like to take them fishing as well, trying to uh, keep them keyed into it. so
1: good. Yeah, I it. What was the last uh, fish you went fishing for?
0: Uh, I caught two weeks ago. I caught about a five pound bass in my neighborhood pond, so that was a pretty good one. But, I yeah, I used bass and bluegill and then some trout uh, rainbow and browns on the Chattahoochee.
1: on the Chattahoochee. Well, I wish I knew you when I was visiting Atlanta because I would have happily fished instead of toured the city. <laughs> so,
0: Next time, Clay, I'll come pick you up.
1: That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, my friend Norm lived down in Atlanta and he took me to a brewery on my very last day there and I was, it was fabulous. All right, so, so you caught a bass and, and do you guys, do you, do you eat fish you catch?
0: I like to eat fish. Uh, I didn't, this one seemed, uh, I, I think it was a pre-spawn female, so I let her go. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll actually, I'll eat bass out of the, out of the pond too. smoke them, make a little smoke fish dip. That
1: sounds eat delightful. Stuff. That sounds really good. All right. Well, I want to get into this is not news. This is just kind of something I want to talk about. I found this on the internet today. It made me love the internet. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to look at this, but, um, in Japan, they, they're, they're working on a new invention. Uh, and and it's from a company called Ma Corporation, Ma Corporation. It's known as a Katsugio bag, and what it is, it looks like an old timey nineteen twenties pressure tank. You know, like like if you were in the hospital, they put you in this big pressurized tank, uh, but you carry it. It's got knobs and, and stuff on it. You fill it with water, and you put in live fish in it, and it's got clear it's clear tube, and you carry your fish around.
0: It looks like something out of the Jetsons.
1: <laughs> I know. It's it's like...
0: Torpedo-looking thing.
1: Yeah, it's like very modern, but also very, like, steampunk. At the, <laughs> steampunk there you go. At the yeah, same time.
0: Strange invention.
1: Yeah, very strange. It's not in the market yet, and the idea is not for you to put your pet fish in it, but in Japan, they love their sashimi, and they want it to be as fresh as possible, and there's nothing more fresh than a, uh, a live fish. So the idea is you go to the market with your... Uh, cats, cats cat, see, cat. I said it fine a minute ago, Katsugio bag, and then you bring your live fish home with you, and then you can deal with your sashimi at home. So, but they're really cool looking,
0: absolutely. I was thinking more for like the aquarium trade or something, I don't know, walking your fish down and selling it to the next guy. But yeah, sashimi, there you go.
1: Yeah, it's now it's interesting. Uh, and they have a lot of great pictures on, I'll, I'll put a link up on the show notes. Uh, but interestingly, I was thinking about this like in New Hampshire where I live. You would not be able to transport any any like wild fish in this thing. It would be completely illegal.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, because the transporting live fish is, in most states is illegal because they don't want you moving fish from one body of water to the other. But aquarium trade, I think you're running the money, but you wouldn't be able to do game fish on there. So like using it for sashimi would, would probably be a fail here in the United States, but I still kind of want one. <laughs>
0: Do you have one coming your way? Did you order one yet?
1: No, I should. I should email the good people at, uh, at my corporation and see if they'll send me a sample one I can review on the show.
0: Maybe that's their next sponsor too.
1: Maybe. Oh, you know, what? I would put a fall fish in there. That's what I would do. That's what I do. All right, cool. You want to do some news? Let's do some news. All right. Wrong button. I do this every time. Wrong button again. Everybody loves the fish in the news, our favorite part of the show. And uh, Mark, I asked you to grab a story or two. Do you want to share a story with us?
0: Yeah, sure. It, it, maybe you already heard about these. I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's the type of thing that when you start looking stuff up on the internet, then your, your computer st- starts showing you the same news over and over again. So I keep seeing about this record sturgeon caught last week in the Detroit River. Did you hear about that? did. I, you see it?
1: I did hear about that. In fact, Doc Martin knows the guy who caught it.
0: Man, what wow. do I have to add to this?
1: We haven't covered the story, though. But, but. <laughs> All right,
0: yeah. Doc, Doc Martin could probably cover it better through that that personal interaction. But, yeah, it was a, a lake sturgeon on the Detroit River, which apparently there's some discussion about whether it's a, a river or a strait.
1: Oh, what the, is the difference? Right?
0: Do you think the Detroit River is a river or a strait?
1: I don't know the difference.
0: Um, I don't either. <laughs> 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 it sounds like a strait is a water body or a uh, a channel connecting two water bodies, uh, whereas a river has more of a a gradient. Um, but the Detroit River is a river and a strait, apparently.
1: Well, like, so. why? Yeah, why can't it be both? Because I used to I, I fish a lot down in at Folly Beach, South Carolina, and I fish the Folly River, which separates uh, Folly Beach from the mainland. And and it, so it I think it's more of a strait now that you are saying it.
0: Yeah, I think about the Strait like Strait of Juan de Fuca, and the,
1: out in Washington. Yeah,
0: yeah. My parents uh, live on that yeah, straight. It, yeah, it's interesting. There was there was some discussion, in some of the news articles about it. But anyway, so uh, Detroit River, which is also the Detroit Strait, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lake sturgeon there, six, almost seven feet long, two hundred and forty pounds, four feet in girth, um, and it crushed the current world record, which was. 168 pounds but this one was not caught hook in line so it was caught by the fish and wildlife service you're talking about there mm-hmm. so they were doing some sampling in the detroit river and um i guess it's it's the strait or the river that uh connects lake erie and lake st Clair. so they were doing their annual sampling and the way they do that is they're long lining frozen round goby on the <laughs> bottom
1: no what goby
0: <laughs> yeah frozen round goby Gosh. stick them on the um, I guess they, they got into this huge female sturgeon. And, um, so as I mentioned, I used to work as a fish biologist, had some pretty cool experiences sampling fish here and there, but imagine that that's your job. You're, you're, you're (laughs) bouncing around gobies off the bottom and then you hook into this, uh, 240 pound sturgeon. My
1: goodness. That sounds like fishing more than biologing.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Pretty neat though, huh? Getting paid for, for fishing.
1: Not bad at all. I used to, when I was working at the, um, at the Ameskeg Fishways, the fish ladder I was talking about, we used to go out and do fish sampling with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we would do we would shock the rivers to sample the fish.
0: Yeah, I've done a lot of that, too. I, I um, did some work on Lake Michigan and did catch some round gobies. I needed them for the research I was doing, and the best way, uh, we did some hook and line. We ended up just seining them. That was the easiest way to get them, but um, then I was looking for smallmouth bass too, for some of the research and it turned out, uh, you know, in the netting and the electro fishing that we wanted to do, it wasn't as good as just good old fashioned hook and line.
1: It so. works. Well, I, I went out, I, fish. I went out with Atlantic, with the well, Atlanta, that was not Atlantic. got Atlanta, Atlanta aquarium in my mind. I went out with the Virginia aquarium and I got to go help them, uh, catch fish for the aquarium and guess how we did it. Line? Yeah, we went fishing. <laughs> that was sick. Cool. The only trick is, and they were very funny about it. The only trick was is we never touched the fish with our hands, mm. and that's how we pretended we were doing better than fisher people. So uh, you win. <laughs> we totally are totally funny. Yeah, it was really funny. It was like vegan fishing. We were, like pretending to be better than anybody else. Oh no, we're not touching the fish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. well, this sturgeon. Uh, this sturgeon was. Uh, apparently they estimated about a hundred years old. I don't think mm. they've it specifically or haven't yet, but um yeah, about a hundred years old. So think about the Detroit river and all that that's happened in, in a hundred years. Um So pretty wild. That thing was swimming around a hundred years ago, hashed a hundred years ago.
1: And how many, you know, gosh, how many cars has, flo- has floated past this fish? Yeah. <laughs> cars and mafia hitmen.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll, what does it
1: seem? Oh. It's seen everything. It seemed too much it has to go.
0: Yeah, the sturgeon aren't doing so hot, but um, I think there's maybe maybe better days ahead as far as you know, the, the pollution the fish have seen and um, the overfishing. So I think they've got some of that stuff under control. So
1: yeah, know, but now that people know there's giant sturgeon there, maybe, maybe <laughs> people will go after them because
0: <laughs> everybody's listening to this podcast and now they're gonna they're gonna know and they're gonna go go after them. So we have
1: tens of people going to get them. Tens of
0: people. <laughs> tens <laughs> bad of, news.
1: I know bad news for the sturgeon. All right, cool. is that anything else in the story Sergeant? Is that the whole story?:
0: Yes, I guess that's about it. Yeah, pretty right. neat story. big, big fish. Got me excited.
1: I, I do get excited. It's funny, do you trophy fish? Are you excited about catching big fish?
0: Uh, some. yeah, that's not my primary motivation, but yeah, when you catch a big one, you know you get excited about it. I did go for a Goliath grouper uh, several years ago, and that was just pure trophy. so there's there's parts of me that enjoy it.
1: but did you uh, catch it?
0: Uh, I caught one. And I, I don't know how much you know about him, but you can't take him out of the water. It's down in Florida, in the Tampa area. Yeah, one that was about 100 pounds, um, which for me was... Huge. You know, very, for Goliath, grouper is pretty small. Right. I <laughs> think the guide was not... you know, He didn't feel like he'd had a, a great day's guiding. Oh,
1: poor guy. Now, the groupers are scary because they look like giant bass mounds that can probably swallow you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're scary. I'm not, I don't like you it. Open up
0: that operculum and just... Suck in all that water, and yeah, they're, they're huge.
1: Yeah, I might not like them. <laughs> you don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared of them. But I should go get one next, my, next time I'm in Tampa. I'll look there up your you guide. All right, I brought a story about fish sticks from the Atlantic. And the story, the, tech, the, uh, the headline is, Fish Sticks Make No Sense. It's like the history of fish sticks. I'm not going to bring you, I'll, I'll bring you part way through the history of fish sticks here in the story here. But um, so fish sticks first came out, uh, back in october nineteen fifty three so they're they're relatively new food um, and and currently, by the way, uh, there's a factory in germany that 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 produces enough fish sticks to circle the entire earth four times. and the record number of fish sticks stacked into, into a tower is seventy four so that's a, there's a record you could try to beat
0: that seems beatable.
1: It is but it doesn't I think stacked one on top of the other not like jenga style where you're like doing three in a row. Uh, yeah. Be- must, must be must
0: be oh, I said less beatable then. If you can't do it jenga style, I'm oh, out.
1: Yeah, forget it cuz yeah. Now jenga fish sticks sounds good. Do you eat do you eat fish sticks?
0: <laughs> not with any kind of regularity.
1: <laughs> so there's been some question with fish sticks over the years of how sustainable they are. So do you know what most fish sticks are made from? They were Pollock. They are Alaskan Pollock, right? Same thing yeah. you get when you go to McDonald's and get your yeah. Filet-O-Fish.
0: Filet-O-Fish. Yeah,
1: which, which, according to all the sources that I've done some little homework on this, sustainable.
0: I, I, when you asked what are they made out of, I guess I should have said flour and fat.
1: Yeah, meat. <laughs> not fish. <laughs> well, so so here's they are made from fish. Um, and we're going to talk about how they're made in a few minutes, but... But they're, they're so beloved. And by the way, at the time they were made, by Birdseye, by the way, they were, there was lots of other stick foods being tried out. So some of the examples are, uh, they're all called rectangular foods, by the way, if you're looking to categorize your foods. Uh, they, but they had chicken sticks and ham sticks and veal sticks, eggplant sticks, dried lima bean sticks, but only the fish sticks survived the time. And why is that? <clears> hmm. <throat> Why is that? And and that's the question that we don't actually know why it survived. Uh, actually, we, we have some theories about it, and the story goes into it. But mostly the problem is after, after, the, after the war, uh, World War II, um, we started fishing a lot. And we had a problem. We were catching too many fish, but not enough Americans were eating the fish. So the problem was that we have all this fish. We have now have the technology to flash freeze the fish, but we have got too much of it. How do we get more fish in front of people? And then the idea was, why don't we season them, package them, make them taste not like fish and sell them to the masses. And that's why fish sticks had to be invented. Wow. It's get over
0: people. Not a bad, not a bad, uh, uh, goal.
1: Not a bad goal. Um, and so fish sticks over the years have like, some people love them. Like I, I think they're kind of just like, eh, they're okay. You know, they, they taste like whatever, dippy, dip them in. So
0: I'm going to take us on a, a tangent here, but uh, have you ever heard of fish wings?
1: I think they were called. No. Carp
0: wings, carp wings I think they were called. No. I ate, I was at an event one time. I think this was 2012, uh, Minneapolis, and they served, I think they were calling them carp wings. So it looked like a fish stick. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, say six inch long, kind of rectangular fish stick looking thing but it was made out of the uh the asian carp the jumping asian carp
1: there delicious
0: and so you you take it in your hand and you would kind of crack it um you know crack it in half and there's a bone in them that's one of the reasons that they i guess uh, they're having trouble uh marketing those asian carp as as food it's not because they don't taste good but it's just kind of bony they're tough to handle um there's a lot of in, uh, videos out there on youtube about how to do it but anyway so these fish wings you you take them in your hand it looks like a fish stick you break it in half and one half is has no bone in it and the other half has the bone in it mm-hmm. uh, you know you you pop the half that has no bone in it in your mouth and then you pull the bone out of the other side pop the other half and then you know throw the bone away so i It it's like a natural fish stick almost
1: i'm in i you know i find i i once ate a um common carp and Got Go for ya. it was delicious. And because uh, uh-huh. it's in the minnow family, and in my experience, all minnows are delicious. Because um, I've eaten, gosh, in New Hampshire, I've eaten all the minnow species in the state. Um, but because um, carpets is our biggest minnow, but it was very, very good. But I did find that bones to be big, like chicken bone size inside of it. The rib bones were nice and big and easy to deal with. And I never let people tell me bony fish is a the reason they don't eat fish because people eat. Um, eat trout like crazy they're so proud of eating trout and trout are super bony like you end up with this carcass of bones on your plate afterwards so i think bones is a bad reason not to not to eat a fish
0: well people eat bony chicken yeah and bony steak and bony ribs
1: exactly oh bony ribs are my favorite kind of ribs yeah <laughs> exactly in fact i get mad too my wife buys me i've been eating a lot of uh it's just not is a chicken thing but i've been a lot of uh, chicken thighs lately because they're so cheap and i like i like them But I I hate, my wife buys them without bones and skin. And I'm like, why bother? Yeah. Why bother? Don't waste my time. (laughs) Get it out of my face. (laughs) Okay, let's get back to fish sticks. So fish sticks are are beloved by a lot of people. My wife, one of her favorite meals is fish sticks, frozen peas, and a little bowl of ketchup to go with it. Like that's on a plate. That's all she'll have on her plate. She loves it. (laughs) Yeah, they're tolerated by others, and they've even been uh, featured in South Park. Uh, and so, we're going to play a little clip here from uh, South Park, and we'll uh, see. Let's decide if this is funny or not.
0: <laughs> and now here he is, Jimmy Kimmel. All right, hey, how are we all feeling tonight? So, uh, let me ask the guys in the audience a
1: question: Do you like fish dicks? Yes. yes. Huh? What are you, gay fish? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd get it. <laughs> what are you, Paul? A gay fish? <laughs> so apparently, more and more Americans are eating fish sticks. Have you seen this? Have you read about this? Loving fish sticks. Kind of makes me wonder, you know. What is everybody, a gay fish? <laughs> Quite
0: possibly the funniest joke ever conceived, and its origin is unknown. The fish dicks joke crosses all borders, all races, all ages and ethnic groups, and is slowly uniting our country. In fact, the only person who appears to not get the joke is rapper Kanye West, who becomes furious when people use the joke on him. Yo, that is messed
1: up, yo. I am not gay, and I sure as hell ain't no fish, alright? You really don't get it. Hey man, I'm a genius, all right. I'm the most talented musician. I'm gonna in the fade world. that out right there. I think that's enough. I don't quite get it, but <laughs> yeah, not following. <laughs> not following, but it, they go on. But you know, South Park they'll they'll do that joke forever until it beats it into people's head, and ends with Kanye West not liking that people do the joke on him, and he blows up <laughs> on the whole world. So that's because it's Kanye. So, but anyway, fish sticks have made the way into pop culture as we've as we've heard, uh, and they really are popular. All around the world, when Queen Elizabeth II celebrated her 90th birthday in 2016, Bird's Eye presented her with a sandwich that included blanched asparagus, saffron mayo, edible flowers, caviar, and most prominently, gold leaf encrusted fish sticks. So, really big deal. It is impressive. It is impressive. Anyway, so they they, they become popular all over the world, um, starting you know way back, way back in the day. So. Um, but it doesn't make any sense. But 13 companies in 1953, when it came out, produced 3.4 million kilograms of fish sticks. A year later, 4 million kilograms were produced by 55 companies, and it kept surging throughout the year. So it's been really popular since forever. But there it is. That's fish sticks. And you can read the whole article. I'll put a link up at fishnerds.com. But um, yeah, fish sticks, they are they improbable popular food there for you. Making me hungry. I know, I know. So it's funny because we'll make fish stick shaped fish food for the kids. Um, now, do you know how they make them? No idea. So I've seen this done in real life because uh, years ago, I don't know if you listened to my old, the older episodes, but Dave Kellan, my, my previous co-host from back when we first started and I, we actually had a contract with a large corporation who did uh, fish packaging. Who was a, they, were fish, they were a fish company. And we, we blew the deal up because we weren't able to produce what we said we could. <laughs> so we lost all that money in the deal. They were going to fly us to Greenland and look at their fishing operations and everything. But we were we were like, you know, we had 10 listeners and no idea how to make a podcast. And we were able to get this deal going. But we got to go in and watch how they do it. So that these fish are all caught, you know, at sea. And they're flash frozen at sea. They're, they're processed right in the ocean. And they take the fish sticks um, and they will, they have machines that cut them into perfect rectangles, right? It's like a conveyor belt, just while it's still frozen. And then while it's still frozen, they get, uh, you know, doused in seasoned flour and into some kind of, I I, I don't know if it's egg wash or some sort of a wash that makes them sticky and then they're breaded and then they're flash fried for about 15 seconds, still frozen, and then put right back in the freezer again.
0: And uh, Wait, at sea or did I miss that part?
1: No, no, they bring them back to the factory. So I was to say that's
0: that's quite an operation. Yeah, no, they're but.
1: frozen at sea. They're <laughs> brought into the into the into the packing plant. They're cut, installed them while it's frozen, cut into the shape, yeah, yeah. and then they are through a conveyor belt. They're they're flavored, breaded, and then they they fry them while frozen. They never get thawed out the whole time, and it's yeah, only fried for like ten sweet. seconds. Yeah, it was really cool to see how they put that together. It's kind of amazing, and it happens really fast. You know, there's a lot of people eating fish
0: sticks, so they get yeah. It's got to be automated. It's got to go quick.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of pollock getting killed for our <laughs> for our bellies. You got another story?
0: I got another story. Uh, I stayed with the record theme. I don't know if I stayed with the record theme or that's just what the internet wanted me to see. But...
1: Well, I'm glad you did because I saw those stories come up and I said, you know, what? I don't feel like talking about his it. records today. And then you know what
0: I'm talk about today? Records. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> So this was the one, the tuna in Texas, record bluefin tuna. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was big. Um, the the part of the story that, well, I'll get to it. So a uh, guy out of Texas was fishing, caught a 876 pound bluefin tuna. Um, a couple crazy things, but one of the wild things to me was, uh, so it took them nine hours to get into the boat, but the last hour and a half apparently was spent, um, they had pulled it to the boat and then they spent the last hour and a half trying get it on the boat. <laughs> so, okay. It was a picture to me it was a bunch of fellows just trying to lift this thing, heave ho it onto the boat, struggling in an hour and a half. That's pretty wild. huh?
1: That's insane. And now, now I've, I've, I understand that. So I went shark fishing once and we caught a 240 pound shark and uh, getting, we didn't, we didn't, we had a hard time getting that in the boat and uh, it, it was cooperating. It wanted to be in the boat. So I can't imagine getting a fish that doesn't want to get in the boat. Into the boat that weighs that much. What was the weight of that fish again?
0: Yeah, it was eight hundred and seventy six.
1: I can't even understand in my brain, hole like what that looks like for a fish.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, you know it's one of those boats with the big, uh, with kind of like the trapdoor thing in the mm-hmm. back. I see. so, um, but still, just a bunch of <laughs> bunch of ladies and gentlemen trying to heave ho that thing and pull it in there was was just a wild thought for me. Uh, another interesting part of the story I thought was, uh, and this was just something I didn't know. They said there in Texas, you're not allowed to target bluefin tuna, but if you inadvertently catch one as bycatch, then you're allowed to keep, and I, I didn't look into all the rules, but you kind of have to pay for a permit after the fact and then report it. Within what? 20- so yeah, they've got this system for, you know, if you, if you catch you're not supposed to go for them, but if you do catch one, uh, then, then you can keep it. So you don't have to, you know, trash it. So pretty, pretty neat uh, concept there, I thought. I don't like it. You don't like it?
1: No, because then you can target them and just lie. Oh, I'm no, I'm not, I'm targeting elephants. Like it's yeah. Well, so they.
0: What do you think they were actually targeting out here? Any idea? Any guesses? Uh,
1: the cobia. They were they
0: were going for slightly bigger than cobia. They were going for swordfish and marlin. Uh And so I I don't know enough about it. Just not exactly my bailiwick to know. You know, but I suppose there's techniques for marlin that would be different than techniques for bluefins. Otherwise, yeah, it's kind of a Silly rule, I guess. If you could just say, "Oh, nope, wasn't going for him." I, yeah. I suppose there be some, you know, some gear and some bait that uh, works, you know, one for one and not the other.
1: But yeah, in this- I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I've, I've never caught a big tuna, and I'm not a big fan of fishing to kill giant predators like that. So I, I, I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I think on the one hand, I would love to be the guy who caught it, and on the other, I feel like it just stop it. <laughs> so-
0: yeah. <laughs> well, two two good things came uh, out of it. Uh one was I guess Texas A&M came down and collected samples from the fish. I'm not sure exactly what they were doing with it, but you know, yay science again. Mm-hmm. Um so ho- hopefully that's uh, advancing some kind of research questions there at A&M. Uh but the other thing was apparently they've been eating his the guy and his family and probably the whole town uh for an 800, 876 pounder, but they've been uh Know, enjoying eating it. And uh, I guess sashimi, I saw in one of the articles, sashimi's uh, been the the food of choice. You mentioned sashimi earlier. So,
1: yeah. Oh, perfect. I, I wonder if they will put it in the little carrying case and get it home. <laughs>
0: you, need <laughs> a, you need the extra jumbo size,
1: right? <laughs> yes, right. I'll take the extra large, please. Um, and, and now, it's interesting because mostly like around here, when people get the big tunas, they don't keep them, they go to market. Yeah. Because a fish like that's worth thousands of dollars.
0: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the what the, you know, commercial operations are like down there. Probably not
1: much going on and not much market. Was it Texas? You say?
0: Yeah, Texas. Yep.
1: yep. Is bluefin tuna? Yep. We're gonna find out what the market price for bluefin tuna. Two hundred dollars per (laughs) pound. So doing the math on that on an eight hundred pound fish, I would don't think I would be able to eat that fish.
0: I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the, the articles. What is it? The first one every year always goes for some astronomical amount of money in in Japan. You've seen yeah, those articles
1: before. It's yeah. always in that. And that's in there, that's, that that two hundred dollar per pound price is in Japan. That would, but they would ship it happily from Texas to Japan.
0: <laughs> they could find a way.
1: Right? They, there's a way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a way. If they can get it in the boat, that's the trick with something that big. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever caught? Well, that's
0: any- all I got on that one. Yeah, pre- pretty wild story. I thought. Just just imagine those folks. Uh, and get it into the boat. It's going kind to of make me laugh.
1: It's really funny. I mean, I, I want to try to help like a, a large human into my pontoon boat, and it was hard. So <laughs> I imagine if that was like a, a bear sized person with no fur and we very slippery and wiggly, that would be even cha- more challenging. And they couldn't just strap it to the boat because they read the old man in the sea, and <laughs> <laughs> there'd be no fish left when they got back to shore. That's right. So yeah. because they were well read, they had to lift it into the boat. If they were dumb, they would have dragged it back to the beach. Big mistake. Big, sh- big mistake there. All right, I got one more story for you. And this one, this one, I'm, I have mixed feelings about. Now I, I, I picked this because you're a biologist kind of guy. Maybe you can help suss it out a little bit. So officials in Colorado are emptying a reservoir to eliminate voracious predators before it wipes out endangered species. And and what they have is so there's, they're draining they're draining a Western Slope reservoir. Uh, because they want to rid the lake of northern pike. And the, the northern pike are eating four species of endangered fish that have been recovering for more than three decades. So the, have you have you heard of this kind of thing happening?
0: I, I heard of a similar story that I'll get to in a minute. Well, I guess um, up your neck of the woods, the Penobscot River, they were worried about um, uh, the pike's effect. If they remove some of the Penobscot dams, they were worried about, um, I think, pike you know, getting yeah. at the salmon. Yeah, in Maine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not New Hampshire, but but you know nearby.
1: Yeah, that's real. That's real close. So, yeah, it is a concern. I hadn't heard of this one. Yeah, yeah
0: this is this was new to me.
1: Yeah, and so northern pike, just like in New Hampshire, are not native to the, to the Colorado area where these pike are, and they're eating these these fish. And the, their solution is to drain all the water out of the lake. And as they do it, they're going to capture every fish in the lake, and they're transporting those fish they catch into a different water body. Are,
0: are the endangered fish currently in the reservoir?
1: Yes. And the pikes eat.
0: eating. They're, they're going to take those fish and move them elsewhere and mm-hmm. then pull it all down. Okay. All right. I'm tracking you.
1: Yeah. So do you want to know what the fish are? Yeah. yeah. Right. A humpback chub, a razorback sucker, the bony tail, and a Colorado pike minnow. Those are the four fish.
0: They're all um, living in that reservoir. Yeah, it's
1: called the Mac Mesa. Yeah,
0: and they're worried that the pike are going to eat up all the endangered fish. Yeah,
1: and as we know, pike are very are very um, hungry all the time. <laughs> so the pike are eating these fish, and and so they drain the lake out, and they were going to do it for the whole summer, drain it dry, and then fill it back up in the fall, and then restock it with all these fish.
0: With with what fish?
1: With the same species of fish, okay. as well as trout, largemouth bass. Black crappie, bluegill, and channel catfish.
0: It makes you wonder what those bass are going to eat.
1: <laughs> I know, right? Well, well, I mean, they'll eat the bluegill. You know, the bluegill, like in New Hampshire, there's a there's a book we read called "The Bassing of New Hampshire," and it documents what fish were brought to the state at different times. And, and bluegill and bass are both sunfish family fishes. They were both brought here at the same time, and bluegill were brought here to feed bass. Like the the intention was. We have to bring bluegill because bass have to eat. Mm. Yeah, but they'll be—I'm sure you know. Whenever they they say they're stocking, those are game fish are discussing there. You know they're putting other minnows in and shiners, and there has to be more diversity than those four, five species of fish.
0: Yeah, this is—I—I'm this—you got me uh, intrigued. I'm going to look into this because it seems. Seems a little wild that these, I wonder if these fish are downstream of the reservoir and they're worried about pike escaping and going downstream, but yeah, who knows?
1: No, it's in the reservoir itself. Mm -hmm. And because people had brought the fish in from nearby water bodies and dumped them in there illegally, and they can't seem to capture them any other way. So because it's a reservoir, they can drain it. But I just worry about what that does to like, you know, it just seems to me like such an extreme measure. Mm -hmm. You know, and and uh, do you ever like get to a point where you're like, maybe those fish, other fish, don't need to survive. <laughs>
0: the deck is stacked against them.
1: It really is. You know, we get the pike in a system, and and humans are dumb, so humans will dump pike back in again. But the other thing humans are dumb about is we also sometimes overreact. And 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 uh, I wonder, like, yeah, this must have been done somewhere before successfully. They didn't just like wasn't their idea.
0: Yeah, uh, it'd be it'd be a. Pretty hairbrained idea. Somebody's in a meeting around a conference table.
1: Yeah. Take down, you know? <laughs> I, oh, you know what, Bob? I got it. What's that was that, Joe? We drain the water. Pull her down. Yep. Just just open the dam up. Let it all go. What about the fish? Well, we can, we'll rescue them one by one. Yep. We got nets and boots. Y'all <laughs> got boots? <laughs> I got boots. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. I got we got four guys, boots, and a bucket. <laughs> save all the fish. Drain oh, it, yeah. but my plug. <laughs> yeah, just like a just like a toilet plug. And then and like the fish, their water's draining out. The fish get closer and closer together in there. Do the pike just start eating everything as it gets denser? The populations, or do they all panic and you have to like scoop them all out? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to see this operation. Yeah,
0: yeah. Did, did it already happen, or they're gonna do it? They're just telling us
1: they're gonna. Uh, I I'm scanning now.
0: Oh, the the, com- the complete draining is underway.
1: Right now. And then, yeah, they're really? going to fill it up in May. So it's going to drain and right away, fill it right back up again.
0: What are we doing here? We need to go there.
1: I know. The other question I have is like, what happens to other aquatic animals in that ecosystem? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got plants, you've got uh, macroinvertebrates, you've got insects, you've got all kinds of, you know, all kinds of stuff to deal with that you're going to kill by draining that out.
0: Yeah, and how long's it going to take? I mean, the yeah, cattails or who, yeah, who knows what they've got?
1: Who knows? So yeah, I might have to do some research and follow up on this kind of interesting story. Maybe I can find some video somewhere too.
0: But you know, uh, I trust biologists, so um,
1: I do too. I do too, but I don't. I just I trust I, they've got a plan. I <laughs> hope they've got a plan. <laughs> well, I don't got a plan, but I got a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, that was fish, that was fish in the news.
0: News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in
1: the news. What are, what other other podcasts do you like?
0: Uh, in the in the fish realm, I've been listening to oh, what's that one called? The Fisheries Podcast. The <laughs> fisheries scientist guys doing that. Ah,
1: I don't think I heard that one. Yeah, it's mostly
0: like talking about fisheries research. Um, there's another fishing one I, that I listened to the itinerant angler. Have you seen that one?
1: Yeah, I have. I have. Pretty that's been, high brow. That's been around a long time.
0: Yeah. That guy lives in Atlanta.
1: I thought he was in DC. No,
0: nah, he's a lawyer in Atlanta.
1: Oh, you should really.
0: Yeah. But he's written for, you know, Orvis and all this kind of fancy fly fishing magazines mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, I listened to that one. I, I listened to, uh, some meat-eater stuff, you know, hunting stuff.
1: Yep. Okay. Have you heard their show with the Bent podcast?
0: Yeah, I just started. I've been listening. Yep. It's, uh, yeah. But do you listen to it?
1: No. Hmm. No, I, I have listened to it. I don't listen to other fishing podcasts because I find myself stealing jokes and ideas. And, and I just, I find myself like, or just not liking them. Yeah. So I, I listen to a podcast called Fish of the Week from hmm. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which I love. Oh, I have to talk about Boat a little bit here. Do you want to go out on a boat? Everyone does. Do you own a boat yourself? Well, boatsetter is the go-to platform for all types of boating experiences, including fishing. It's also a way for charters to grow their business or for a boat owner to rent out their boat to make some money. To sign up to list your boat for rent for, or for charters, tell Boat Setter that Fish Nerd sent you. The team will send you a free swag package. When your boat listing is complete, visit Boatsetter.com, B-O-A-T-S-E-T-T-E-R.com, or download the Boatsetter app to plan your next adventure. Get 5% off when you book with the code FISHNERDS. Um, just kind of sidebar here, uh, the guys over at Boatsetter, uh, have, Ed and Luke, have been came on the FISHNERDS a couple years ago. They used to run a company called Fisher Guiding, and they, they, they merged up with Boatsetter. And uh, this is a personal thing. These guys are the first people ever to come through the Fish Nerds, make it big, and then come back and support the Fish Nerds. We've had hundreds of guests come through uh, running their products through our show, and not one has ever come back with that kind of support. And we really do appreciate it an awful lot. So if you like the Fish Nerds, you got to make sure you please support Boatsetter.com, B-O-A-T-S-E-T-T-E-R.com. We've had, we've had people come through our show and get on Shark Tank, and win big and not come back to us you know so we're we're just really means a lot to us and they're a really great company and if you can you got a boat your boat can earn you money when you're not using it boatsetter.com and if you're on vacation or somewhere put that app on your phone and you can get a boat to take yourself out and go fishing boatsetter.com thank you guys for sponsoring the fish nerds podcast now we've got to talk about doc martin doc martin has to break into the show today to give us some really important fraudulent fishy science and we're gonna get on right now here's doc oh yes it is some time to do some science saying doc martin is joining me she last night in the middle of the night i got a, a message from doc martin saying clay we need to cover this breaking news story right now and it's some fish news it's some science and it is controversy and scandal so we have to cover it because we are you know what we do here do science sometimes. Good morning, Doc.
2: Good morning. And, and speaking of things that might be fraudulent, um, I'm not 100% confident that midnight was the appropriate time frame because I definitely need my sleep. <laughs> uh, and I know for sure that I was in bed before 10 p.m. Central Time. So,
1: <laughs> right. No, I said mid, I think I said middle of the night. It's, and it's 10 p.m. the
2: middle of the night now.
1: For me, if you go to bed early enough and get up early enough,
2: that's fair. That's fair. Be.
1: Yeah. It depends on your timeline for sleep. All people like us who get up at four in the morning, middle of the night is different than people who go to bed at 11 o'clock.
2: That night, is so. definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a warning to all of my students like, hey, I'm a morning person. If you email me after like six o'clock p.m., I'm probably not going to answer until like four or five the next morning.
1: <laughs> right. we goner. All right. So let's, let's just jump right into this because – this is important, fraudulent news. And I think it's really important uh, as, as sciencey-minded people mm-hmm. that we don't just report positive stories. We have to get into it when when, when things go wrong. So I'm going to let you right. take us through this. Right, and
2: um, I think the important thing to note is uh, this is a really unfortunate but great example of science self-correcting itself, right? Um, it, it was other scientists, that came in to find the right answer, um, that that means the process is working. Um, But there were uh, some scientists that have published, gosh, uh, since 2012 or 2010, um, uh, several papers on ocean acidification and its effects on fish behavior. So uh, making fishes more bold, um, steering fishes toward chemicals produced by their predators, those are
1: some. Yeah, I was crazy. reading about that. They were yeah. making, they, they said they claimed, was it was clownfish?
2: I don't remember which species.
1: They were claiming, yeah, with the right level, levels of acid, they'd be attracted to the scent of a predator. Mm-hmm. And it was like a significant amount of attraction. Like, yeah. Like, right. Well, that's the whole significant
2: yes. yeah. yeah. Pretty yeah.
1: extraordinary claim.
2: Yeah, that is. It would be very bizarre, obviously harmful, right? If you're more attracted right. to predators, that's really bad for the population and reproduction, sustainability, all that stuff. Um, this claim did make it into the 2014 climate uh, IPCC report, um, which basically was a statement um, of profound consequences for marine diversity. So, of course, that, that statement itself is very broad right we already know ocean acidification is real this is that is not mm-hmm. the thing that's under question here we, we know that that's happening that's illustrated um, time and time again by multiple scientists across the board um, this is something that's a little bit more specific out of one lab uh dealing with several scientists uh, two labs i guess now because one of the scientists was under the original pi primary invest, principal investigator and then they moved to a different university to establish their lab, right? Which is exactly what I did. I had a PhD advisor and then I moved, got a university job and now I have my own lab. So that's kind of how that works. Fancy pants. Um, And we do kind of similar-ish research still because that's how I was trained, right? Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, and so we do know that um, obviously changes in pH, uh, that's a big deal for organisms on a lot of different levels, just cellular, cellular processes. Um, habitat requirements, all of that other stuff. And so one of the aspects of profound consequences for marine diversity could be this change in fish behavior. So that's how we would unpack that sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turns out that in 2020, um, a group of other scientists tried to uh, reproduce the studies that show uh, ocean acidification changes fish behaviors they did a huge, uh, very robust three-year study, um, and they didn't see any dramatic effects of ocean acidification on fish behavior at all.
1: Um, right. I think one important thing to remind listeners who aren't science background people, the whole point of the scientific process and method and publication is replication. Right? It's the idea that I can, make a, I can make a claim, give you the data, and you can enough information where you can repeat that experiment or do the same study and get the same results. That's why we do it. That's why we publish papers. That's like the, the whole point right
2: there. Right. That's exactly and, right. And that's and, what um, I think it's also really important to say that to have one paper find, especially in ecology, to have one paper find certain effects and have a subsequent paper that is maybe of similar methodology but maybe a different location finds differing or conflicting effects. I'm, I'm writing a paper right now on um, wetland macroinvertebrates and we're trying to find I out like how that diversity deals with different things. And when you go and look at the literature, you say, well, the wetlands over in this region, they do this and the wetlands over here do this. And it kind of depends on, well, what definition of a wetland are you using and all of these different variables. So. Having conflicting results is not a big deal in science, and also not really surprising. It's, it's doing that repetition to find generalities in patterns.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Does that make sense?
1: <laughs> it makes good sense. Yeah. Good. Well, it's important because because people a lot of a lot of non science people too will look at. This stuff and go yeah, see science. That's why you can't trust it. You know, Mm, yeah. Whereas the opposite should be the brain space. Like you can trust it because it's correcting. It's looking at itself over and over again. That's why you can trust it. And you see, especially right now in the era in the era of COVID, you see a lot of this kind of conversation happening on Facebook where science will say a thing, and then a few weeks later they go, oh, hey, we found out this new information, so let's correct that previous statement and that is what people use to like be kind of the anti-science folks it's a weird
2: which is is, i mean that's the irony right right. of they're like oh my god science you're doing exactly what you're supposed to how dare you it's (laughs) like uh, i mean if that's if that's the message that you want to receive i guess i can't stop you it's just it's so inherently wrong i you know what do you even do with that like just are they willfully not wanting to understand this i'm not really sure
1: I don't know, is it a new thing to be like against being wrong? Like this, this notion that being wrong is such a terrible <laughs> event. Well, so I don't um, think so. It's such um, a hard brain space.
2: Yeah, I talk about that in the class I teach in the fall, right, Clay, that you're involved with, is this notion of being mm-hmm. wrong. And it turns out that a lot of people take certain weird stances like that um, because it, it something about that, in this case, science, something about the science, whatever aspect that is conflicts with their core beliefs. I mean, and that's really mm. what it is, is. Who are you as a person? What are your core beliefs? And if something threatens that, um, it turns out change is hard and change is really, really scary. And you kind of just go through this whole denial and, you know, you don't want to believe it because it hurts your ego. It hurts your feelings. It mm-hmm. makes you feel stupid. And that's a really uncomfortable yeah. feeling. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. Or even feeling.
1: worse than that even worse than that, it ruins a good story. Because this 2014 mm-hmm. study, I reported on this a few years ago mm-hmm. because I found it interesting. Because uh, I love the notion that, that like this chemical, the acid change in the ocean, could change a fish's behavior so much that it would be attracted to its predator predators. Right. And, and to me, that's like a, like an amazing story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I've told it enough times, and people have repeated enough times, where it's, kind of, it's almost part of the zeitgeist. So when this new data comes in, Showing that not to be a thing, right? Uh, it's really hard to change. Well, now I got to ditch a story I've been telling.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to science. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> it is, and I mean it's humbling too, right? To to say, oh, well, you know, hey, I and you know, I wanted to trust scientists, and this seems like it was pretty legitimate, and now other data coming out that says it isn't, and. Well, you know, where does that put me? It's like, well, it put you in a great place because you learned something new, and now you can talk about the new thing that you learned, right?
1: <laughs> right. Um, right. So let's talk about the data a little bit.
2: Yeah. because that's where the why it was problematic.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so um, it's not the big. The big deal is not that scientist A found this thing and scientist B did not find this thing. That's something that happens all the time. It's really, really standard. Like I said, especially in kind of ecological studies, depending on. All the different variables and factors that you have going on. Um, the problem here is that when um, the the data that were used by the original group were scrutinized, there were some problematic inconsistencies. Which is really, really uh, vague terminology for saying we don't think these data are real.
1: Right. They didn't want to say fraud. They like they call it the F word in science. Like they're really right. afraid. Well, to and they, they haven't reached
2: that point before. yet. Uh, they're still in, yeah, they're but. still under investigation. Um, and, you know, sometimes shit's weird. <laughs> like <laughs> <is> how you <laughs> can say, it. like sometimes things are really weird. I mean, I think of the physics that I learned. Physics is really freaking weird, right? So that's like, true. Yeah. Sometimes the weirdness is the reality, and you have to double check and make sure. And so um, that's where they're at right now. They're like okay, these are, these are weird, these are inconsistent with maybe what we would think based on some assumptions we have to make about how the data were collected or whatever those assumptions are, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so they're, they're in the middle of double-checking those, doing interviews with the scientists or any um, research uh, helpers that were uh, on the boat collecting data, analyzing data, all that stuff. Um, unfortunately, well, some of the um, um, interviews have not given a positive spin on this either. So that's kind well,
1: of... Isn't one of the problems... F word. Yeah, the F word. Now, isn't one of the problems also that like the expectation of scientists to hold on to their actual data collection devices, their lab notebooks and all that, that's kind of an expectation. And these guys did not keep that stuff.
2: Well, it depends. So, um, so yes and no. Um so I hang on to a lot of mine, but not all of mine. And so what I usually do is for some of the data that I have, um, oh gosh, I think for almost all of my publications, I have that raw data somewhere buried in a folder on my computer. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and there's some of the data that I've used that is open access to stuff on Kanza LPR. You can go in, you can also find a lot of those data if you wanted to redo some of my analyses. Um, And that kind of stuff. So it depends a little bit on where data live um, and what the Mm -hmm. projects are. But I would assume based on the size and notoriety of the lab, yes, they would keep things like that. Now, there's other places where once they publish a paper, they start to discard of things so they don't have too much crap. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, uh, there's a wait period of like five to 10 years. Like you publish a paper, you wait five to 10 years before you start kind of discarding that stuff in your lab or maybe even a little bit longer. But usually with mm-hmm. data, data is something that's digital now, right? Especially since mm-hmm. these are all stuff from the 2010s and later, right? I'm pretty sure. Right. And so that's very easy to store. Um, I'm thinking of, we take, we've taken measurements on pickled fish, you know, where we, we collect a bunch of them we sacrifice them we take all their measurements skin plugs genetic analyses whatever and then you just you cannot keep these hundreds hundreds or thousands of jars of fish you just can't no. Keep and so that's something that gets um you, you throw out x percent and you keep some as vouchers just in case someone does want to come back and go and look at those things right so a little bit of gray area there, I guess, where it depends on just the
1: study, the purpose, the amount of space something holds. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So let's let's kind of drive back into this. And so the problem is it looks like the appearance of fraud is there. Yes. And the new the new research is coming out. They can't replicate this. They can't kind of verify it. The interviews didn't go well. Yep. They can't find backing up information. Right. What happens?
2: Well, um, Probably nothing good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the biggest problem is that, well, as we've already talked about, this is never good for um, science. It just never is. It, it feeds into that unfortunate narrative that the people that already don't trust science go, aha, look, fraud, oh my God, blah, 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 right?
1: Right. And, not aha, uh, not, uh-huh. we, we caught our own fraud, but aha, uh-huh, right. look, these guys are <laughs> fraudulent. Therefore, everybody else is fraudulent.
2: Right, so. not that, yeah. hey, by the way, the people that caught the fraud also scientists right like that's yeah, the key yeah. there is it's not just it's not the guy on facebook right it's just like There's, i don't trust science let me tell you about it in the comments it's never that guy no <laughs> <laughs> sorry if, if you're that guy come talk to us right
1: um, no, i don't i doubt those guys are our listeners i think our listeners are are a little bit little smarter than that
2: <laughs> so. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'd put it on a gauge of smartness. I think it's just maybe misguidedness and You're
1: but, nicer than me. That's all I think it's smartness. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, so there's that, right. It's just, it's just not good. Um, but um, I think the really unfortunate fallout is there are probably a lot of scientists that are not the fraudulent scientist, right? So there's it's probably of the group that is publishing um, on the, the uh, ocean acidification changes behavior. More than likely of that huge group of people, it's like the one person that went in there and they were in charge of the data or, or something like that. And they're the ones that did the sneaky thing. And other scientists might not have known that they did it but right. they're going to be co-authors on that work because they helped in the field. They, they, you know, they started to catch the fish or they did a oh. lot of work writing in the introduction and, or designing things. And so they didn't actually do the data analysis per se, but they did a significant amount of work that gave them co-authorship.
1: Oh, can you imagine doc, like you're, you're working on your PhD dissertations and all this work and you get published, you get your name on a paper. You're so proud of it. And then a few years later, you'll get tarnished with it, with this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, really, like that would be shocking. Um, um, I mean, I'm not in a really big lab, so most of my papers are stuff that I've done myself, right? So it's like right. well I yeah. guess I guess that'd be me then. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Oh, so you painful. know, <laughs> oh, I
2: mean that would be pretty terrible. Um, but I, I I would hope I I feel pretty confident that if anyone did anything with my papers, they'd just be like, Oh, well she made a really stupid mistake and I feel like that'd be the thing I have to live with, you know. Well,
1: how do we how do we do that? How do we discern just a mistake mm. from fraud? How do that's we know a, the difference? Because yes, what if it was a really just, great question. oh, shit, I made a mistake. Yeah. Right. And so um, you, you
2: can kind of tell. So a lot of the times a mistake is something <laughs> where, um, you know, you did a data analysis and let's say that you meant to do like a, a type two ANOVA and you typed in the wrong alpha value in your model and you didn't realize you did that and so it's like oh it's all statistical based on this level of significance and it's like oops nope you actually used the wrong level of significance or just you know something really silly like that. Um, There's also just typos in the data. Um, I've done this I've caught it I I hope every time (laughs) but um, you know when you're Looking at long data sheets and you are you're typing columns of data 1.24 2.34 da, 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 and you're entering all those thousands of things sometimes you go 1.34432 You know and you you combine right. two numbers into one or you forget the decimal point point. Um, and when you do that um, It can lead to erroneous um, Conclusions just because you typed mm-hmm. in the data wrong now almost always hey, but- because when I, when I teach my data analysis class, I teach you ways to look for those things, right? <laughs> <laughs> to right. Find well, them. also,
1: when you, when you run those numbers and you get your little graphs and all the stuff from the data,
2: right. it those just,
1: mistakes show because your graph should. looks weird. Yeah.
2: Right. Now, it gets a little hard sometimes. So one of the variables I like to use is algal filament length um, as an example of that. And so you can go and measure this algal filament length just in centimeters and you can have variable values from 0 to 5 to 10. And every once in a while, you'll get a value that's just like 98, right? 98 centimeters. It's just this crazy long filament. And if you did an analysis on those data, you would find those crazy high values. And you would be like, hmm, you'd have to stop and pause and make sure. Is that a real value or is that a typo? And you have, to, you, mm. you have to know that. So if you did the data collection, you would know, first of all, right? But if you didn't right. do the data collection, if you're just a statistician, you have to talk to the person that took that data to know that answer. So there's sometimes that communication that happens too, right?
1: Right. Well, in this particular paper, mm-hmm. the author, uh, his name is Monday M U N D A Y. He he is claiming that the block of ten duplicated numbers, the mistakes in the data, are just human error, that he will correct.
2: And right, and that's what's under investigation. Right, we don't know. Right. Um, the The, the uh, uh, interviews that were done by some of the uh, fellow researchers uh, suggest that mm-hmm. that might not be the case, mm-hmm. but you don't know um, until the investigation is over. And so that's just how it is. Cause like, that's not completely um, false. Like, I don't, I don't think that's outside of the realm of possibility. Um, you know, everybody makes mistakes kinds of things. Um, but, you yeah. know, sometimes you do things out of desperation because you want to see the right answer.
1: Right. So what are the impacts here? So like this, this person Monday has put up the papers out. Does this mean people are going to dig in deeper in his other research and start like really kind of find out how deep does this go? Is it like a common thing for him to do this kind of thing? Or do we just take
2: I think it depends. Just one thing? As it's so um, I know there's been some folks um, it, it, that have been shown definitively to have had eight, at least one or more fraudulent papers. Okay, Mm -hmm. Um, And when they find one, it's very definitely fraud. Like, this is clearly just absolutely made up. This is no way relevant. They, They do go back and look at some of their other work. But if it turns out that this case study gets over and they're like, you know what? You guys just made a really embarrassing, stupid mistake. That still means that the conclusions from their work are not good. Um, but mm-hmm. it also means it wasn't purposeful. And so if, right. if that's the case, my guess would be like there, there would be less of that, of going back in time and looking.
1: Right. It's a lot of work <laughs> and a lot of expense. Now, what yeah. would be the motivation for creating this kind of fraud?
2: Yeah, so um, it kind of depends. I know uh, there was one guy in physics. It was pretty famous. You probably know this case that made it on the front page of, like, some of the really big magazines, like, you know, science and all that other good stuff. And it turns out that his data were, like, totally made up, like, 100%, just absolutely bogus bonkers. Um, and did it for the same, right? <laughs> Which seems, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't think you can claim that for these scientists. Uh, I mean, no, no offense to, like, all of our awesome marine biology people or fish ecology people, but if you're like me, I mean... Can anyone name a famous fish ecologist? <laughs> you know, like, I
1: can't name one. Right, yeah.
2: <laughs> most people can't, So it, it, it's probably not the fame is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. um, but it is, there's some pressure to publish in peer review literature, uh, particularly at R1 and R2 uh, universities or research institutes. So high um, output level, you have to have so many publications in a certain tier of journal. Um, does that make it okay? No. However, why would that make you have fraudulent, statistically significant data? I'm so glad you asked, Clay. Right. And so it turns out I'm there's so a glad. huge publication bias. Um, if you submit a paper for publication where you have a significant result versus a very similar paper where you don't have significant results, it is more likely that the Paper with significant results will be published, and that's a huge and and very well known problem. In
1: oh, because it's scientists. juicy, right? It's it's got the story behind it. That pu- right. that, that was exciting because it changed it the behavior of the fish story. so significantly. That's exactly right. It was right. like we did all this work and found nothing. <laughs> you know who cares? <laughs> right. So, and
2: so, and oh, that's I, that. it. I mean, that's really the the crux of it is that. Yep, it's all about. Um, it's a, it makes a better story, and so it, just, it it's just easier to publish so, because you did find a thing.
1: So science, science, science publications are just like most other media; they want people to read it, they want the attention, they want the stories, mm-hmm. and so that kind of bias is what causes—not causes, what correlates with this kind of behavior
2: right and i i mean we've really I th- i'd say since the 90s we've really really got a, a pretty good understanding that that is a, a, a problem that we as a scientific community need to deal with exactly how we deal with that is hard because it's not just like someone sitting there going "Oh, I mean, this is statistically significant we should definitely publish this and definitely not publish that, that that's not what's happening right that it's not purposeful right. it just it kind of just makes sense because those statistically significant stories tell a story, right? Uh,
1: Yeah. When we're human, we like stories.
2: Exactly. And so that's a a really trickier thing to get around because it's not something that people are doing um, knowingly for that one. So that's just a tough thing to fix. If you don't know you're doing that, then what do you do?
1: (laughs) Now, now, when we do know stuff like this, we're seeing this a lot in our modern uh, culture as well. Uh, like if you think of like the woke culture and all that, we overcorrect sometimes too. Is that a possibility? Now, will we be over scrutinizing and over worrying when this happens, or do we? You know, correct I'm, in not, a I'm not
2: 100 percent confident that um, there can ever be too much scrutiny when it comes to something that mm-hmm. should be peer reviewed science. Right. I mean, if, if, if you're <laughs> going to do it, uh, I mean, and even if it's, you know, significant, not significant in a high tier journal, or maybe make a mid tier journal or just a local journal or whatever it's going to be, um, your paper should be able to stand up to the scrutiny.
1: And that's the whole point.
2: Right. That's exactly the whole okay. point. So we all, you know, we are all human. And so... Mm-hmm you know it's uh uh, if you've ever been on peer review so i am i am the editor right of a a peer reviewed journal part of my job that i do Mm -hmm. um and so i do a lot of peer reviewing and i try to make sure that the thing i'm reading is reasonable and done well that's a very hard thing to do on the outside Um, you don't Mm -hmm. always know how the data are collected and to some extent you have to trust the authors that are giving you the paper. You have to. Um,
1: that's why it's so important that when we see fraud like this, we grab it and point it out. Right so now. that way we know who we can trust. Because these guys now reputation is tarnished. You know, the and unfortunate so the part is
2: the, um, the the bigger the authors are probably the less tarnished they might be. It's going to be the you know the early career scientists. The undergraduate, that kind of stuff, where it might be their only paper or their only few papers, and now all of those are going to be flagged.
1: Ooh, yeah. 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 Oh, because because they're not setting their career path already.
2: That's right. That's going to be really oh, tough that's a on good them. Point. And, they, and they probably are not the ones that did anything wrong.
1: Right. They're just some guy who or a girl who just was digging in the data, doing a lot of the, um, grunt work so to speak
2: right yeah exactly Keep, yeah um helping with writing and organizing and cleaning up the lab mm-hmm. and, and maybe even making the recordings or what like just doing all the work except like probably except the data analysis right that's usually right. <laughs> how i'm in my lab i do a lot of the data analyses with my graduate and undergraduate students because i have that expertise but then they do like everything else right and with with my guidance, is like yes, you design the experiment, and I kind of help you to make sure that you're doing it in a way that is scientifically sound. That's probably what happens.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see what it turns out for these uh, for this crew here, and see if it turns out to be fraud or just a mistake, as they claim. Yeah, well, either way, we can keep you updated. Yeah, we'll follow along. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Doc.
2: Yeah, thanks, Clay. I, I I'm hoping for the best, but um, we're, we'll just have to wait and see.
0: So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing.
1: Special thanks to Boat Setter, Wally Pleasant, and Diana's Bath Salts, And big thank you to Mark for test driving the co-host seat tonight. Glad you were able to make it.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. You're Until right. next time, follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often.
1: Never trust a free lunch with strings attached.
0: And swim against the current every chance you get.
1: You did it. You made a podcast. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream Getting those ankles wet Or deep in the ocean casting nets Fish nerds Fish nerds Fish nerds It's a podcast Just for the halibut it in a basket or broiled in a pan Eat it raw like you're in Siam Fish nerds
0: Fish nerds It's a
1: podcast. It's a podcast. Well done, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yep. See you next time. Hey, stay with me here, though. All I'm right. I'm just stop the recording. Stop the recording.